Hey everybody, Yislike here. Thanks for tuning in today. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by A Thousand Dreams, a developing adult liberal arts curriculum that celebrates transgression in most of its forms. Currently, the curriculum is comprised of a daily blog, four weekly podcasts, weekly multimedia lectures, a book vlog, lots of extra content on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest, and a Patreon that includes exclusive content and early access to much of our regular content. You can access all of our content, including a link to our Patreon, from our central hub at a thousanddreams.org. Please send comments and questions about the curriculum to a thousanddreams.org at gmail.com. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Yes Like and Lance Rockadopolis, and you are listening to Meet the Rockadopolis. Our topic for today is sadomasochism. So, in our discussion, we're going to focus first on the namesakes of sadomasochism, the Marquis de Sade and the Baron von Sacher Massac. Then, we're going to talk a little bit about sadomasochism through the ages. And then we're going to talk more about people's ideas about sadomasochism and how they've evolved through time. And then we're going to talk about our own experiences and what it means to us and for our relationship. So I'm going to start out talking about the Marquis de Sade. He was born in Paris in 1740 to a very old but not very well-off aristocratic family and his father was a diplomat for Louis XV. His mother was basically a lady-in-waiting to the Queen of France. Saad spent his earliest years living at the royal court with his mom, and she had big plans for him. But her plans were soon thwarted when, at the age of four, Saad beat the shit out of the future Louis XVI, who was six at the time, uh, because Louis XVI touched one of his toys— his mother immediately retired to a convent, and he was sent to live with his uncle, who was a hereditary abbot. Yeah, the uh, the abbots, the heads of monasteries, that was actually a hereditary post at the time. And he was also really an unapologetic hedonist and quite the sexual adventurer. But his uncle was also very educated and, and a good guy, very good-natured. He gave Saad a lot of positive attention he took responsibility for Saad's education and encouraged him to explore literature and philosophy at a very early age. After some formal schooling and a short military career, he then married into a wealthy bourgeois family and decided to indulge in the sexual and philosophical misadventures that he is now well known for. So what is he known for? Well, first and foremost, Saad is known for his pornographic and philosophical writing and also for his sexual behavior. In addition to his three extant novels, Saad wrote numerous plays, short stories, philosophical essays, political tracts, speeches, but roughly 90% of his work was destroyed during his lifetime and in the decades after his death. 
He's also known for bad behavior. While his novels describe extreme acts of sexual deviance, including rape, incest, and sexual enslavement, his own transgressive sexuality is well-documented actually in the legal records of his time, and it focused mostly on sodomy, which was his word for anal sex, an obvious fetish for blasphemy, and unfortunately, sex with young teenagers. He spent 32 years of his life in asylums and in prisons, which is where he did most of his writing, and he died in an asylum at age 74. Saad's work has certainly been condemned over the last two and a half centuries, but it's also been celebrated and admired and subjected to deep scrutiny and analysis by historians and philosophers, literary critics, cultural theorists, psychologists. The term sadism was coined by the German psychologist Richard Kraft-Ebbing to describe a sexual disorder in which one is aroused by hurting another person without, well, often without their consent. Of course, sadistic behavior has been documented throughout history, but before Saad, it really hadn't been conceptualized as a mental illness. But before we get into that, first, let's learn a little bit about masochism's namesake. Leopold von Sacker Massak was born in Lemberg in 1836. Lemberg is now Lviv, which is a city in the country of Galatia. His father was a city director of police. His mother was of Ukrainian nobility. In 1873, he married Angelica Aurora Rumelin, who was also the author under the pseudonyms Wanda von Donoju, same name as the character in Venus and Fur. The last years of his life, Sacher Masak spent under psychiatric care. It is not clear where and when he died exactly. Some sources claim that he died in an asylum in Germany in 1905. He is known for being a popular writer and journalist. His early non-fictional publications dealt mostly with Austrian history. At the same time, Masak turned to folklore and the culture of his homeland, Galatia. He became quite successful for his romantic stories of Galatian life. He was one of the first to draw a realistic picture of the Jews in Galatia and fought all his life against anti-Semitism. Victor Hugo, Emil Zola... Heinrich Ibsen, King Ludwig II of Bavaria were, were among the fans of Sacher Masak. His most famous work, Venus in Furs, was published in 1869. And another thing that he's known for is the Sacher Masak cake, a variation of the world-famous Sacher cake. His most famous work was part of an abandoned series of novellas grouped in six volumes under the collective title Legacy of Cain that was supposed to represent his worldview. Only the first two volumes were completed. The first volume, Love, begins with a prologue short story called A Wander in which Love also contained the novella Venus and Furs, and this became Leopold's most famous work. The short novel expressed Sakura Masak's fantasies and fetishes, especially for dominant women wearing fur. He did his best to live out his fantasies with his mistress and his wives. Most of his works remain untranslated into English. Until recently, his novel Venus and Fur was the only book commonly available in English. Sakar Masak pressured his first wife, Aurora, to live out the experience of the book. He found his family life to be unexciting and eventually got a divorce and married his assistant. 
On December 9th, 1869, Sacker Massac and Baroness Fanny Pister, who was by then his mistress, signed a contract making him her slave for a period of six months, with the stipulation that the Baroness wears furs as often as possible, especially when she was in a cruel mood. Sacker Massac took the alias of Gregor, a stereotypical male servant's name, and assumed a disguise as a servant of the Baroness. The two traveled by train to Italy, and in Venus and Furs he traveled in a third-class compartment while she had a seat in first class arriving in Venice, where they were not known and therefore would not arouse suspicion. The term masochism is derived from his name, invented by his contemporary, the Austrian physicist Richard von Kraft Ebing. Massach did not approve of this use of his name. Von Kraft Ebing is quoted as saying, I feel justified in calling this sexual anomaly masochism because the author Sakar Massach frequently made this perversion, which up to this time was quite unknown to the scientific world, the substratum of his writings. Details of Massach's private life were obscure until Aurora von Rumelin's memoirs were published in Berlin. Having read Venus and Furs, it is my opinion that it is well written. I definitely improved my vocabulary and understanding of classic Greek literature, but I really do not understand the attraction of these characters. Severin uh, comes across as too whiny and needy and very demanding at times, and he definitely tops from the bottom. He says he wants a cruel woman and insists that that cruelty increases his desire. Uh, Wanda becomes less and less interested as her cruelty increases, and the ending to me seems like an abrupt about-face, and it kind of contradicts all that came before it. It seems kind of contrived that he would lose his interest in serving her, but maybe the author was doing that intentionally to provide his audience with a predictable or acceptable ending. So now I'm going to talk uh, briefly about sadism through the centuries. Many of you probably know about all this, but here are some extreme examples just to refresh your memory. So there are the ancient Romans. Given all the killing and feeding people to wild animals that went on in the Colosseum, it appears that sadistic pleasure was essentially a civic, a civic duty in ancient Rome. Then, you know, there are the emperors Caligula and Nero, of course, well known for their evil exploits. I do think Nero probably beats Caligula for, for pure sadism, though, surprisingly. I mean, Caligula liked to fuck his sisters, cuckold his senators, kill anybody who looked at him crossways. But Nero did things like set whole rooms full of people on fire while they were having an orgy and disguise himself like a commoner and go out to the seedier parts of town and beat up drunk people passed out on the street. So flash forward a thousand years or so, and you have the French nobleman Gilles de Ray, a war hero and a buddy of Joan of Arc, who also enjoyed luring dozens of children into his chateau to torture and murder them. And a hundred years later, the Hungarian Countess Bathory and a few of her closest friends also lured a bunch of kids into her castle for the purposes of torture and murder. But a formalized understanding of sexual sadism and the idea of sadomasochism didn't exist until the late 19th century, 
when Kraft Ebbing coined the term sadist and masochist, as well as homosexuality, bisexuality, necrophilia, in his influential book, Psychopathia Sexualis. Freud started writing about sadism after Kraft Ebbing. Not surprisingly, he believed that sadism and masochism were rooted in events in early childhood and were repressed in the unconscious. He's the one who coined the term sadomasochism, insisting that, quote, a person who feels pleasure in producing pain in someone else in a sexual relationship is also capable of enjoying as pleasure any pain which he may himself derive from that relation. He's basically claiming that all sadists and masochists are switches by nature. Around that time, Kraft Ebbing wrote that sadists and masochists might experiment with the other roles, but would quickly revert to focusing on one or the other. Both men saw sadism and masochism as flip sides of the same coin, though, and Freud would return to his study of sadomasochism several times throughout his career. He was fascinated by it, by its complexity, and he also saw it as fundamentally linked to dominance and submission. I also want to point out that Freud didn't necessarily think that sadism was bad. One of the reasons why I love Freud is that while he saw almost everything associated with sex as pathological in some way, he really wasn't very judgy. It seems to me like he was more curious about and delighted by people's weirdness than he was interested in curing them. And at one point he said about sadism, it's all right in its place, but it should be directed to proper ends. I must admit that I resemble that remark and strongly concur with it. After World War II, people started to focus more on the big picture of sadism because the Holocaust demonstrated very publicly that sadism could be deployed on a massive scale for social and political ends. More humanistic psychiatrists and philosophers like Eric Fromm saw sadism as something that is pathological, but at the same time inherent in human nature, or at least very common. And also in that point in the evolution of how people think about sadomasochism, we start to see both fictional and real-life representations of sadomasochists dressed in ways that are reminiscent of Nazi uniforms. We see people start to practice BDSM in communities that mirror some of the protocols and power structures associated with the military. By the late 1960s and into the 1980s, Cultural theorists like Gilles Deleuze and Michel Foucault are writing extensively in neutral and even positive ways about sadomasochism as both a social and psychological phenomenon, or as Foucault puts it, quote-unquote, a massive cultural fact. Surprisingly, sadism wasn't officially pathologized by the American Psychological Association until 1987, when sadistic personality disorder was entered into the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Apparently, it was included in the manual to help generate funding for research, and then was removed because, as one researcher wrote, physically abusive sadistic personalities are most often male, and it was felt that any such diagnosis might have the paradoxical effect of legally excusing cruel behavior. Sexual sadism is in the DSM-4 and classified as a paraphilia, which is basically a need to, um, it's a need to do weird and extreme shit to get aroused. Also, FYI, 
the World Health Organization currently classifies sadomasochism as a quote-unquote disease. The most recent edition of the DSM, the DSM-5, adds sexual sadism as a disorder, but very thankfully, they qualify their use of the term by stating that sexual sadism is only a disorder if the sadist isn't okay with being a sadist, or if they are committing sadistic acts non-consensually. There is a view that most sexual practices have been known and enjoyed throughout history, but masochism is a recent development only coined through the use of psychoanalysis in the 1880s. But sexual historians agree that the behaviors have existed for far longer. Activities that could be classified as sadomasochism include human suspensions. There are stories of medieval courtly love that uh, involve masochism. Um, human suspension is a tradition that dates back thousands of years and was historically and strictly performed for sacred ritualistic purposes. Um, it is thought that they originated amongst devout Hindus in India. The act of suspending a person from large gauge hooks that are carefully placed through temporary body piercings, um, this was a tradition also in in certain North American Indian tribes for centuries, most notably the Mandan tribe who lived along the banks of the Missouri River. In the ninth century, the Benedictine hermit Peter Damian advocated the whip as an instrument of religious discipline suitable for cloistered monks and nuns. It aligned the flagellated victim with the sufferings of Christ. Also, its ritual of disrobing recalled the nakedness of Adam and Eve before the fall of man, and only unrepentant sinners should feel shame when they are stripped naked before their peers. About 1700, Abbe Jacques Beaulieu, a Parisian canon and doctor of theology, published a vigorous critique of the practice of religious self-flagellation. He railed against the pagan origins of voluntary flogging, um, he also cited its lack of biblical precedent. He also noted that it, that if you were to engage in it, it is especially effective at awakening unchaste movements, his terms. He argued that it is erotically motivated and aligned with fleshly interests of the buttocks and genitals rather than with some kind of supposedly lofty aims. The architects of modern concept of masochisms, and that includes the aforementioned Crafty Bing, Freud, Brewer, and Lacan, all saw it closely related to religion, in particular the ascetic flagellation. There's a recent 1983 article in the Journal of Religion and Health by Robert M. Price entitled Masochism and Piety. It tells a story of about a father who asks his son to whip him in order to pay for the son's sin of blaspheming and cursing. That story is called The Whipping. The spirituality of that story is seen to be basically masochistic. The question is raised whether the spiritual masochism does not represent a repressed or sublimated sexual masochism. People should ask themselves if they can condemn sexual masochism while advocating its spiritual counterpart, or vice versa. 
to me, um, it's possible that there is something sacred about sadomasochism, whether the intention is a spiritual one or a sexual one. Um, that feeling of transcendence, some people in the BDSM community call that subspace, it's, it's very synonymous or analogous to the spiritual experience that religious people have. Similar to sadism, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association also indicates that people with a masochistic sexual interest have basically a problem, um, or it's considered a disorder. Sexual masochism is described as an addiction-like tendency with several features resembling that of drug addiction, you know, the craving, the intoxication, and the, the tolerance to pain increasing, and if you don't get it, there's withdrawal symptoms. There's also a behavioral spin, which is a process that someone goes through that is characterized by the behavior growing in frequency and in magnitude. As it develops, it gains its own momentum, and the individual finds it almost impossible to stop, even when faced with known unwanted outcomes. For the participants in sexual masochism sessions, the behavioral spin is manifested as a continuously reinforcing process, uh, leading to the masochist engaging in ever-increasing pain and, and, and risky behavior. Getting back to the religious and spiritual ecstasy components of masochism, the linkages between sexual ecstasy and religious or spiritual ecstasy are numerous. Artists have depicted it quite frequently. There is Bernini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa. It has been written about countless times. There's an article by Ariel Guklich uh, called Pain and Ecstatic ritual experience. In it, he argues that pain is instrumental in promoting a feeling of transcendence and is therefore extremely pervasive among mystics who report ecstatic states of consciousness. Thank you very much. That's very interesting about the religious stuff. So now we're going to talk about our personal experiences and thoughts regarding sadomasochism. So like I've said in previous episodes, I've I've had sadistic fantasies from an early age. While I did try hard to repress them, um, I don't actually think that my sadism was caused by by some kind of repression, like Freud said. I also don't think it was caused by childhood trauma, but who knows? And I don't really care. I'm just glad that I'm finally doing it. I'm also not a switch in any way. Pain does not turn me on, and neither does humiliation. But for me personally, it is like Freud said, and that it's largely tied into dominance and submission. But that's certainly not true for everyone. From what I've read, I don't I don't see that Saad himself was particularly interested in any kind of dominance or power exchange outside of play sessions. So what do I get out of it? Honestly, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, giving pain makes me feel powerful and in control and also loved. There have been times when I felt spiritually connected to various energies or maybe even deities. The single tail has such a powerful energy to it. It's got so much cultural meaning and, and cultural history. And it, it, sometimes it really feels like it, it moves and acts like it's, like it's actually alive. 
I also know that there's a lot more for me to explore about myself and my sexuality. Nothing that Lance and I have done so far has come even close to to what my fantasies were when I was younger. And there are many things from my fantasies that we absolutely are never going to do. And that's a very good thing. But as I'm learning more about my real life erotic self, I'm beginning to see ways that we can take our pleasure, as Foucault calls it, to new levels. It's just that we need to to really take it slowly and carefully. The masochist in me finds it a little disappointing that we will probably never live out the extreme fantasies you have. I'm I'm kind of excited uh, to know your deep, dark secrets. This exercise in my research in masochism is was fascinating to me. I found very strong linkages between spiritual practices and religious and the linkages to subspace and in that feeling of transcendence. I think that feeling is very positive in my opinion. I don't find it particularly addictive like the psychologists say, but I do kind of agree with them in that I want to keep pushing my own boundaries and keep increasing the pain levels and increasing the humiliation. I'm kind of looking forward to exploring those things with you. That feeling of transcendence hasn't been frequent with me. I maybe experienced it two or three times in, in our play sessions, but I'm looking to have more of those opportunities. Okay, so that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. The topic of our next episode is aesthetic sex and kink as self-creation. We hope you can join us then. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.